9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Roscoff, and I am coming to you from actually an automobile uh, heading from Washington to New York, and I apologize for that. Uh, but, the, you know, uh, events dictate this. Fortunately, uh, we have uh, four other people who are extremely well-grounded wherever they are, uh, and that includes in Washington, D.C., Georgetown Law School's Rosa Brooks. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. You're not in a car at the moment, are you? No, I'm not in the car. (laughs) But but if you want me to, I could get into my car. I'm sure our listeners do not. Also, uh, you can hear laughing in the background, Joe Cerincioni of Plowshares Fund. Hi, Joe. Hi, David. Happy to join you today. Thank you. Thank you. Glad you could join us. And Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello. How are you? Good. And uh, in London, England, maybe, is Corey Shockey. Where are you at the Indeed, I am in London, where I do not even have a car that I could go sit in to be Solidarność with you, David. I cannot imagine a Californian without a car. It did give me the shakes for the first several months I was here. Um, Well, fortunately, the uh, government of the United Kingdom and the voters of the United Kingdom conspired to come up with other reasons for you to have the shakes. Um, and maybe that's a good place to start. Uh, let's start with Ed, who has been our kind of Brexit correspondent, uh, and as much as Rosa is regularly predicting the end of the world, Ed has been pretty regularly predicting the end of the United Kingdom. How's that going, Ed? It's proceeding according to plan. It's actually accelerated a little bit. Um, uh, I think that uh, the fact that people are focusing on the conservative victory last Thursday might overshadow the larger victory, which is the Scottish Nationalists in Scotland. They took 49 out of 59 seats in Scotland. And so the second largest victory was the English Nationalist Party, which is what the Conservative Party have now become. And then in Northern Ireland, for the first time, the Irish Nationalists actually got more seats than the, than the Unionists. Um, Wales is the only outlier there. Everywhere else, nationalism is bigger than any sense of Britain. Um, having said that, you know, I don't think Boris, he, even though he, doesn't, he signals very much he doesn't care about the other parts of Britain, I don't think he'll want to be seen as the prime minister who presides over its breakup. So there might be, he'll resist a referendum in Scotland as long as he can. And he'll uh, probably attempt to, um, you know, pile the subsidies on uh, up in the north of England and in Scotland to try and uh, to try and assuage some of that anti-English feeling that is bound to grow 
in leaps and bounds as Brexit happens. Um, my bigger concern, well, my equally uh, large concern about where British politics is now going to go is that, you know, really the key the key strategist that working for Boris Johnson, this guy Dominic Cummings, of course, immortalized by Benedict Cumberbatch in um, Brexit and Uncivil War, that um, Netflix movie. Um, he is, he's a very talented uh, sort of electoral, um, electoral genius. He ran the Leave campaign in 2016, and then Boris brought him back into politics last July and has basically been following his script ever since. He's, he's a very, very talented political campaigner. He has a tendency to produce sort of three-word sentences with a verb in them, such as take back control and get Brexit done, that that work, particularly when the opposition is, is sort of mulchy and confused. Um, but he has a deeper philosophy. Um, he's a great admirer of Russia, spent many years in Russia in the 90s. Um, he's a great admirer his, of, of Bismarck. Um, and he, he has this theory about... Um, he has a theory about people, you know, uh, working in the deep state um, th- who uh, he's written a long sort of epic length blog about called The Hollow Men after the T.S. Eliot's poem. And he believes in a spiritual regeneration of government, which is, has a very Russian tone to it. So I think those, those who are sort of trying to see silver linings in Boris's whopping victory um, last Thursday, and now believe he will pivot to the centre. I, I think are probably as as prone to wishful thinking as those who were saying the same about Trump when he was elected in November 2016 that he was going to pivot to adulthood. I, I don't think that's the project here. I think it's I think it's far more serious, and I do think it will probably lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly something big is happening to the United Kingdom, which will probably diminish it as much as, as your departure, Ed. And sorry, I, I, I still have to do it. Announce your departure from the United Kingdom. Um, which is a one-two punch no nation can withstand. Uh, but perhaps, perhaps you could take a moment and tell the deep state listeners what's up oh so gladly i am uh, leaving up as deputy director of the iiss in january to join the american enterprise institute as the head of its foreign and defense policy team and i'm very excited about it i'm moving to washington uh, yay Thank you, Joe. I look forward to watching baseball games with you, especially when my Cardinals have a series against your Nationals. And I love the IISS, and I love the work I have been doing there, but I feel too far distant from the problems that matter most to me and that I want to contribute to, most particularly uh, trying to affect the debate amongst conservatives about America's role in the world. Well, we need you well, back, Corey. Awesome. Thank yeah, you, we're Rosa. very, very happy to have you. We're happy to have you coming back. We're very excited about it. 
But tell me, you know, while you're over there and you're with the folks from IISS, what do they think, what do you think the security implications of this British vote might be? Oh, I think they are significant. Uh, so Johnson has, Ed, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he's got, he's got a majority of somewhere around 80 seats. That's correct. I think it's 79. Um, if he had had a majority of 20, he would have been desperately beholden to people who might break away from the government on particular votes. But he's got a majority of 80 seats, 79 seats, and a hundred and something of those conservatives uh, who got elected are are members of parliament for the first time. So um, he is likely to believe that he's the wave that swept them all into power. It'll be interesting to see whether they agree with that, um, whether they feel beholden to Boris Johnson and the campaign that Dominic Rabb uh, arranged. But I think in the near term, it means should he choose to, um, Johnson has the electoral majority to ignore the hardest line Brexiteers and, and take a more moderate tone. And my guess is he will, uh, you know, say that Britain has exited the European Union on January 31st and then doesn't matter how long the actual negotiations take because it's going to be boring and complicated. And uh, as long as people aren't paying attention, he can drive a much less hard bargain than he claimed he was going to. Sort of the way Trump makes pronouncements and the policies never follow, but his voting base gives him credit for it because they saw it on Twitter or they heard it on Fox. Um, and so he's in a very secure position for the five years of this parliament. He can make a choice to moderate whether anyone will believe it, even if the policies follow, given how the stridency of his behavior in the last six months. Um, I think that's going to be problematic for him. Um, and he's very much at risk, as Sarah Palin was, Saturday Night Live caricature becoming what very many people actually think of him based on his behavior in the first six months he was in office. Um, but if he could choose to, he could, all of those responsible conservatives he kicked out of the party because they wouldn't support his flavor of Brexit, he could find a way to bring them back in and that would signal a shift to the left. But they, I won't steal Joe's thunder because he's so much more knowledgeable about this than I am, but the potential consequences of a breakup of the union as Northern Ireland um, has the possibility of growing much more integral to Ireland than it is to Great Britain. And Scotland becomes more and more restive for remaining in the European Union. Uh, Ed's right. Johnson has the ability to deny them um, a vote on remaining kingdom. But as Ed said, the resentment, if he refuses to allow a vote, 
that, you know, Tony Blair confidently won um, is going to be really problematic for him. And over to you, Joe, on the nuclear. Yes, that Joe, that was the question I was going to ask. So why not answer it? It's almost oh, fitting it's... that we're doing this podcast with this enormous wind noise coming in because I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're talking into the headwinds here of, 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 of the, sto- the storms that are coming. And one of those storms is about uh, Scotland. You know, you, Ed just said, you know, the, the, there might be a possible breakup of the UK. Well, that has nuclear implications. So, and what's going on is that while Boris Johnson won a sweeping victory, so did Nicola Sturgeon. She's the first minister of Scotland, and she's the head, the head of the Scottish National Party, which, as the name might imply, wants an independent Scotland. Well, they swept the board in Scotland. They won nearly 80% of the seats, higher than they even thought. And she has already been on the phone with Boris Johnson uh, calling for a referendum on independence. Uh, you remember, they had an referendum a few years back, which they narrowly lost. She wants to do it again. But she can't do that without Johnson's support because Parliament has to approve. Johnson says he won't, but she she wants to make her case. She's going public. She wants to force the issue. The, the significance is not just what happens to the United Kingdom. What happens to the United Kingdom's nuclear uh, weapons? The United Kingdom has all its weapons based on submarines, a very small submarine fleet. And all those submarines are based in Scotland at a base called uh, Fastland, or as some call it, uh, Gary Lock. And and after that, it fills up with a whole bunch of Scottish names I can't possibly pronounce. But up there is where the United Kingdom bases its nuclear force. If Scotland leaves, it takes the nuclear base with it, and therefore the United Kingdom has no place to, to reposition its the, the nuclear weapons it stored there since the 60s, since the times of Polaris. And could they build another nuclear base? M- maybe, somewhere, but not one as good as the one they got. And of course, that would cost billions and billions of pounds adding to the government deficit. So there's a lot of, um, of dominoes yet to fall from the election results last week. So I, I was listening once to... Uh conversation, an interview of Ed about this, and needless to say, the way the conversation went was, so, Ed, you're from the United Kingdom. What does your election mean for America? Um, and, you know, that tends to be the way Americans have been doing it. <laughs> um, you know, even though it, it, you know, means, you know, something for Europe and the UK as well. But Rosa, do you see this as having any implications for the United States? That's a great question. And and yes, potentially, in all kinds of ways that are, I think, actually pretty hard to, to predict, you know, how they're going to play out exactly. But, but I, you know, one of the sort of symbolic messages that this sends to Americans, um, which I don't know if that's a, a, good message or a terrible message, I I lean towards terrible, um, is that uh, politics as we know it, nation states as we know it, um, 
don't make the assumption that they're going to endure. I mean, obviously, this we've seen nation states uh, change their shape uh, many times in the past. And, you know, I think the, the most recent, you know, we've seen divorces between the, the Czechs and the Slovaks and so forth. Um, sometimes those divorces are, are amicable. Sometimes they are not remotely so. Um, but the United Kingdom, depending on when you start counting, has, has been around more or less in its, well, well aside, from, aside from the whole Ireland thing. But, it, but it's been around in, in one shape or form uh, for several hundred years now. I think Scotland, Scotland and England uh, united, uh, or not so voluntarily necessarily on the part of the Scots, in about 1700, and Ireland was added around 1800, and um, then parts of Ireland, of course, left again subsequently. Um, but it's been around for a while, and the idea that it could completely dissolve in the near future, um, as as Ed and Corey have suggested, uh, in some ways is 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 kind of shocking, and it, I think it will also be seen by some as liberating, as a reminder that just because we you know, we're born with this particular set of political arrangements doesn't mean that they're going to stay here. Um, the trouble is, of course, that will inspire some to work for peaceful change in constructive ways, others uh, less so. But but I, I, I mean, I do think that, you know, it's it's in some sense, it's a victory for Donald Trump. Um, you know, it's a victory for the forces of chaos. It's a victory for the forces of nationalism and for a very transactional approach to international relations and it is it is going to make Trump feel further empowered it is going to make the, his supporters who for those views feel feel more empowered feel like the trend lines in the world are going their way as unfortunately uh, indeed they they seem to be um, um, you know I I think the the only silver lining that, that I can see is that there is there's potentially a, a healthy version of that conversation of Yes, why do we assume that the political order we were born with is going to be the one we end with or should end with? You know, the healthy version of that is to, you know, and we've had this conversation here before, uh, you know, maybe the United States in its current form just doesn't work anymore. Um, that doesn't mean there should be a civil war, God forbid, uh, or a revolution, but maybe that does mean that it's time to energetically renew the conversation about both forms of federalism and degrees of federalism and and renew the conversation about potential constitutional amendments, because we certainly seem to be at a moment when most of our population feels stuck and feels like the current system isn't working. And Brexit, you know, for all of its problems, maybe is a re reminder that that things can change and it's probably worth having conversations about what we need to change. Ed, if I could. Uh, after having criticized somebody else for asking you about the uh, whether we can make any analogy between the Johnson win and the Corbyn defeat <laughs> with American politics, uh, can you make an analogy between the Johnson win and the Corbyn defeat? I, 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 I'm, I'm delighted to. I'm, I'm still um, still recovering from my surprise at, at, at the question. Um, uh, I think um, <laughs> that there are a couple. There are a couple of things. One, I mean, it Rose is quite right. I mean, this is an opportunity for Trump, you know, who is a europhobe um, and particularly an EU-phobe. This is an opportunity for him to further drive a sort of 
uh, a wedge through Europe um, because Boris Johnson's instinct um, and his self-preservation instinct um, right now will be to have not Brexit in name only, but he, he doesn't want to have a disastrously uh, abrupt Brexit, particularly on services. Everybody focuses on trade in goods, which is a very mid-20th mid century conversation. 80% of the British economy is services, and physical borders don't matter for services, but regulations do. And his instinct will be to keep Britain closely um, aligned um, in regulations with for services in Europe so that um, the British economy can continue to grow. It's by far Britain's largest market, and Britain has a surplus in services um, uh, exchange with, with the European Union. Um, and Trump will make it absolutely clear no deal with the United States is possible uh, um, if Britain remains uh, in regulatory alignment with Europe. So he will keep, he will keep Boris, from his perspective, um, honest, in other words, um, as far as possible from a Brexit in name only, which is a phrase in British conservative circles, in British um, Europhobic circles. Um, and he will, he will keep pushing for the maximal possible split from Europe. Um, so that's sort of one, that's one implication of, 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 you know, the coming months. In terms of, you know, the comparison between Jeremy Corbyn and uh, the populist um, wing of the Democratic Party, Warren and, and Sanders, I think that can be a little bit overdone. Um, uh, I, d I don't think that um, you know either Warren or Sanders have a particularly big reputation for anti-Semitism. I don't think either of them, you know, are going to be fudging or sitting on the fence over Brexit, which is what Corbyn sort of primary tactical error was in this election. They do overlap in terms of um, a lot of the economics, uh, although Corbyn went a lot further. Corbyn promised to privatize, um, uh, sorry, um, and renationalize um, all the privatized utilities, including British Rail, at huge expense, interfere in private renters, um, landlords put, putting um, limits on, on, on what they can do across the nation, giving company shares back to workers. There was quite radical stuff in there um, that um, exceeded even what, even what um, Bernie's talking about. So uh, we're also, you know, an ocean apart and a year away in terms of these two elections, the 2020 um, American one and the 2019 British one. So some circumspection is probably merited. That said, in 2016, when, when Brexit first happened, um, the Trump campaign was euphoric. You know, they saw this as they saw this as a sort of John the Baptist moment to Trump's Jesus. Um, they saw it as a gigantic demonstration effect that it could be done. And I've no doubt that is their feeling. Um, and Trump on Twitter made it clear, pretty, pretty clear that was his feeling um, from last Thursday. So, you know, I, I, I'm sorry not to give you a, a simple answer, but it's a bit, it's a, it's a bit more complex than some of the sort of straight line conclusions that you've, you've seen drawn um, on this side of the Atlantic in the last three, four days. Yeah, no, that's no doubt the case. Uh, the most common of those is people saying Jeremy Corbyn is Elizabeth Warren or Jeremy Corbyn is Bernie Sanders and therefore don't vote for them. Um, and that seems a bit over the top. But let me, let me 
take it up a notch if I could, uh, sort of in what I hope is deep state radio fashion. And I've posed a question to all of you. It's a little complex, but I'll start with Corey. Um, picking up on Rose's point about the different forces at play in, in the world, um, and, you know, where you have the sort of rising nationalism, which is I've characterized, some others have characterized possibly as Putinism, which is, you know, Russia's play to fill the void left by the U.S. Um, by trying to dismantle the institutions and alliances that were a source of U.S. power. Now, it's interesting because I was talking to a former Obama official the other day, and we were contrasting that with China's play to fill the void left by the U.S., which was to take over the institutions and to reshape mm. them for the 21st century with a bigger role for the Chinese. Um, so you have the U.S. receding, trying to step in to a sort of new world order in which they have a role, and the Russians trying to undo that world order and those institutions, Brexit being an example, NATO attack being an example, and so forth. But I, but I, I want to add a slight bit of an overlay on this, which is the, 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 the interesting fact of it is, is it used to matter what the U.S. thought. It used to, what might have been a big deal. Scotland might not have done what you were our leader talking about, with pulling away from, from the U.K. If they thought the U.S. would be wildly against it 20 years ago, might not be as big a deal today. Another thing that's happened in the past couple of days is that the um, uh, Erdogan in Turkey has said, maybe I'm going to shut down Interlink Air Force Base, where we have a big forward deployment, nuclear warheads, and so forth, which is would have been shocking before. But he doesn't seem to care what the U.S. thinks. And then I had a meeting with a senior official from a, a country in another part of the world. And, and th that official said, you know, six years ago, my, my associates were constantly, you know, saying, well, what does the U.S. government think? Or what does the U.S. government think? And now they don't think that anymore. They don't even ask the question. And so it seems to be, you know, I mean, we can get caught up in Trump or we can get caught up in Boris Johnson, but there does seem to be a tectonic shift going on here. Uh, and Corey, I'm just wondering what you think about it. And then I'll go around and ask each of you. I'm a little bit skeptical, David, not because I doubt that those conversations are occurring, I hear that very often too, because people are really anxious. The United States was a predictable force in governments of Democratic or Republican presidential administrations for the lifetimes of most policymakers in most countries, right? You could tell what the US would think about stuff. For the most part, you could tell what they were likely to do about stuff. And so allies could align their activities to, for mutual support and adversaries knew where the red lines were. The only thing I would say is that there's a lot of mythology also going around as though the United States once upon a time um, 
you know, everybody had to care what we do and nobody did what we didn't want. And at least among America's closest allies. See, the Archie Bunker version of international relations. <laughs> exactly right. But in real life, this is the 187th time Turkey has threatened to shut down Interlake Air Base. And in 2003, they denied the United States the ability to move forces through Turkey for the invasion of Iraq. And in 1994 or so, um, when we accidentally uh, hit a Turkish ship during a NATO exercise and several people were killed, the Turkish government declined compensation but wanted release of the names of the American crew because they were just sure there were Greeks on board. Um, so I, I think it's possible to overstate the influence America has always had and the anxiety that people feel is making them nostalgic for a golden age that I don't quite remember. But, but the point that to the extent the United States is principled in its practice of foreign security policy, to the extent that that is predictable by allies and adversaries um, and consistent with not just our domestic values, but the belief that our values are universal and can be safely enshrined in institutions, and that even on the occasions when those institutions don't do exactly what we wish they did, it's in our interest to have those institutions. Um, those things are still true. So Joe, in the part of the world, the aspect of world affairs in which you're a specialist, arms control, it's been absolutely critical that big strong power like the US in the middle of it. Uh, and the US view of a world governed by um, rule of law and international agreements uh, has been very important to stabilizing things. And something seems to be changing. Now, Corey may be right, and this is not, you know, there was never a golden age in all of this, but, but there's some, there do seem to be some changes afoot. I'm wondering how you view this paradigm shift. Yeah, well, first, I take your point about Russia and China in their different roles, that Russia is destroying institutions on its way down, and China is constructing it on its way up constructing by trying to, as you say, take over the U.S. framework and just substitute China or some other uh, collective leadership for the role of the U.S. I was just at, at a meeting in Vienna, foreign foreign ministers, something that Madeleine Albright pulled together. It's called the Aspen um, uh, Ministers Forum. And this was about three weeks ago. And the big topic at this discussion was going to be nuclear and cyber threats and their intersection. But overlying all of that was this concern about the deteriorating U.S. leadership, how we are leaving a void that where the U.S. used to be the one that was leading, setting the tempo, creating the ideas, setting the example, providing the funding for these things, almost all those Roles, all those, those the arrows are all pointing the other way now. We're showing less leadership. We're providing less funding. We're setting a, a negative example. We're disuniting, not uniting. 
And there's no one yet who can fill in that void. You know, in the future, say 10 years hence, might there be a stronger EU? Um, might other countries emerge to help the United States? Might the US itself recover? Maybe. But meanwhile, there is this deterioration. And there, are, there were some in this meeting who said it will never be the same. So that while many, many leaders are waiting, waiting one more year to see if the US replaces Trump, if it gets, restores its footing, there are many who, who believe that the US cannot be counted on the way it used to be. Because how are we to know, they say, that another Trump won't go along? How are we to know that even if you have a what we would consider a good president for four years, that this cycle's not going to repeat itself? So I fear that these international institutions that we built up over the last 70 years, you know, from the IMF to the um, cooperative effort to secure nuclear materials, all these institutions have now suffered a, a powerful uh, and a, a blow for, from which it'll be very, very difficult to, re to fully recover. And we should be thinking quite heavily about how to replace them with things, honestly, that are not so dependent on US leadership, because even we wonder if we could ever get have the kind of leadership we used to have even as recently as three years ago. What do you think, Rosa? Well, I, I think that I, I would actually take Joe's comments and question a step further and, and, and maybe your question, David. And I think it's worth doing the thought experiment. Um, um, if we don't care at all about the US or the UK, you know, if we were if we were the statistically average human being who lives in neither one of those countries um, and is a lot poorer uh, than most people in either of those countries, is this a good thing or a bad thing to see the, the, the decline of the US as a global power, to see the further decline of the UK as an influential power within Europe? Um, you know, is this something that is it that, I mean, obviously we, we, all of us on this call have deep ties of both, both legal and emotional to, to the two countries we're talking about. Um, but, but if we didn't have those ties, um, how would we feel about this? And, and I think that that's actually a good thought experiment to do, you know, that, that obviously there are risks and one of the risks is, one of the risks is instability. Um, another risk is that the U.S. is, uh, the vacuum is filled by um, an actor that is far more uh, uh, ruthless and ungenerous than the U.S. and the U.K. have been, at least in recent decades. Uh, uh, historically speaking, we don't have quite as much going for us when you look a little further back. Um, you know, but on the other hand, um, you know, again, trying to, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm playing an uncharacteristic role here, looking at the glass half full version. Um, <laughs> you know, if we, if we, if we take the very, very long view, um, maybe the international order is really overdue for a significant shakeup. Um, we, we can hope and do our best to ensure that that shakeup will be one that is, is entirely peaceful in nature, and that that shakeup won't be too painful for anyone in particular. And I think there obviously are, are, are both nations and, and individuals who are more vulnerable than others um, to the costs of instability or, or repression or conflict, um, but that we should actually be saying, you know what, that whole, uh, that whole structure of a global 
order dominated by this very small number of countries, a disproportionate number of which were, were European or, or Western in their heritage. Um, that didn't work out all that well. Time for something completely different. Um, we're, we will be holding interviews for new superpower next Thursday at 4 p.m. Bring your resume. And maybe that's okay. Well, that's I mean, it's an interesting question. And, and of course, I think one of the points that, that you can bring up, even if you, you know, or if you, if, you know, that reconciles your view and Corey's view and the premise of my question is that something is changing and we're going to enter a different kind of uh, great power condominium of some sort and the roles are going to change. Um, but just to go back to this, and Ed, this can be the last word in our conversation. Again, I apologize to everybody for having done this from afar. But, um, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. have played a role at the center of all this. And the U.S.-U.K. relationship is always described as special. And um, no doubt Trump and Boris Johnson will describe it that way. But if the U.S. was behind building institutions, and the U.K. is now a part of taking apart the EU. It may break down itself. You know, it changes this, this relationship in the middle and causes one to ask, you know, what is Batman without Robin? Or what is Sherlock Holmes without Watson? Or what is Lucy without Ethel? I don't know. Pick the team. That you, the sidekick that you want. Um, but, but one thing I haven't really heard discussed very much is how does the diminution of the UK further diminish the US? So the, um, the Americans, the Truman administration specifically, um, through the Marshall Plan, uh, basically encouraged, um, incentivized the formation of what became later on the European Union. It started as the coal and steel community um, by conditioning martial aid on cross-border projects, uh, which was an incredibly wise, far-sighted act of institution building. Of course, in the shadow of the Iron Curtain that was going up and of, of, of geopolitical realities, but it was an immensely far-sighted and um, really um, effective uh, instance in history of enlightened self-interest. Um, that project then became something that Britain wanted to join, having wished to stand apart. And that was also as a result of American action. Again, I think um, fully justified, slightly less, far, more reactive than far-sighted, which was, of course, the Suez War of 1956 when Eisenhower abruptly withdrew support from the, the pound and that sort of, you know, pulled the curtain down on empire. And so America has always incentivized Britain to be in Europe, um, uh, integrally in Europe and to be the bridge between the United States uh, of Europe. It's now trying to, to break that bridge um, and therefore to break the West. Um, I, I, that might sound melodramatic, but that's how the West has worked. Um, and so whilst Trump or Trump-like figures are running American politics, 
um, America is going to be actively undoing its own creation uh, or its own co-creation. And I think that has dramatic and far-reaching consequences. The only sort of other thing I would, other parallel sort of um, strain of stream of thought I would add to that is that, you know, we've, the last 20 years have been an extraordinary period globally, um, actually without parallel of people being lifted out of poverty and getting electricity and getting running water and getting inoculations and reducing maternal mortality rates. It's, there's been no period in history with quite this scale of human development improvements, not just in China, but in India and sub-Saharan Africa, across the world, in every continent. Uh, and this has coincided with the, the squeeze on the middle class in the West. And our democracies have not been able to take that. We've not been able to... to share resources, hmm. um, invest um, the products of our growth more widely than the tiny share at the top that have been capturing them. And if we had been doing that, we would not be going through most of these conniptions, notwithstanding all the sort of racism and the reaction to modernity and the hatred of immigrants, which, you know, is definitely a part of it. I do believe the sort of grander backdrop to this um, is what's happened to the middle classes and our inability to make life palatable for them. Um, so the solution, you know, is, is not in the stars, it's in ourselves. It's, it's the opposite of Shakespeare. And uh, I think if we, if we, if we can find um, a more intelligent left-wing politics than Jeremy Corbyn tried last week, um, it should not be beyond us. Well, I hope it is not. That's a pretty helpful uh, prescription there, or, or view. Um, actually, putting progress back in being progressive, uh, or putting, uh, as Corey suggested, uh, principles of conservatism back in being a conservative. Um, and that's something we'll look for. Uh, I'm very grateful that you guys tolerated my drive north. Um, and uh, Hope that everybody, uh, guests and audience alike, will join us again for a quieter um, uh, episode <laughs> uh, next week. When uh, <laughs> our, uh, my goal is to look back at the the teens, the decade that will be over in two weeks, and try to determine what are the one, two, or three biggest developments on the international stage. The ones we'll be talking about. Uh, in the decades to come, uh, uh, sort of a look back at a decade that started with, um, in the United States, a financial crisis being in recovery from that and being still focused on a war on terror and have ended with, you know, discussions like the one that we just had about the world order. Um, so we'll discuss that next week. In the meantime, thank you so much. Corey and Rosa and Joe and Ed and everybody, please come back. Uh, and if you want more, um, uh, please go to the dsrnetwork.com for more episodes of Deep State Radio and our other podcasts. Thanks very much, everybody.